This is Women in STEM Career and Confidence, the podcast for professional and STEM women wanting to restore confidence, make a meaningful impact, and balance the things and people that mean most to you. I'm Dr. Hannah Roberts, and I'll be sharing with you insights and inspiration into the mindset and skill set to help you navigate your career and lead powerfully. I'm really excited to introduce you to Dr. Margaret Dominique. Margaret grew up on a pig farm in Mexico, and her love for physics fueled an incredible meteoric journey to becoming an optical engineer at NASA. In this episode, we talk about a serendipitous moment that enabled her to apply for an internship at NASA, how her support systems make us brave because they believe in us until we fully believe in ourselves, and how the work from her PhD thesis is now being a component of the mission to launch the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope in three to four years' time. Can't wait for you to hear her story, so let's dig in. A huge warm welcome, Margaret, to Women in STEM Career and Confidence. I'm so pleased you could be here today. And can you tell people a little bit about who you are and what you're up to in the world? Thank you, Hannah. I really appreciate the opportunity for you having me so I can share my story. I'm very excited to be here. My name is Margaret Dominguez, and I am a NASA optical engineer. Amazing. Thank you. And I always kind of like to take it back to the start and when you first got interested in science. So tell me that moment that you had where you thought, yeah, this is kind of a the subject for me. I specifically remember two examples. So one of them, which my mom loved to tell the story, is she would have me wash the dishes after um, after dinner. And sometimes I would very inefficiently do that because I would stare at the water droplets in the sink sort of propagating on the dirty dishes. And so she was annoyed because I was taking too long to do the task, but I was really sort of observing the, that, that effect on how the, the water was propagating the plate. Not really thinking about what, you know, what that meant for later, but I was just, I think it was an indication early on that I was really curious and I like to, to sort of make these observations a second, a second uh, example, I remember we went out clubbing, which there was only like one club in the really small town where I grew up and my mom always went with us. That was my dad's rule and I have three sisters. So whenever we went out, um, and I was like 16 years old. So it was like a teen club. So it was very, um, you know, very PG-13. Um, so we were out at this club at like also six o'clock in the afternoon, probably. Um, so they have the lights and, and um, I decided that I could write an equation that would describe how the light patterns were changing. I had no idea. I was not in college yet. So I had no idea how to do this, but I remember that I was confident enough to take a napkin and start to scribble something. So that was a really good indication. So I wasn't, I wasn't scared, I guess, of math. I had really good math teachers and I think that's really important. Um, and, and of course, now I'm like, I was foolish enough. I had no idea what I was doing, but it was an indication that I liked it enough. I was comfortable enough. And my mom and my dad were always sort of really supportive because that's a really important part, that support, um, especially going into physics, women in physics in Mexico, about 4% 4, 4 of my population goes to college. So I know the numbers are really small worldwide, but in Mexico, they're extraordinarily small. Um, so the fact that they believed in me and they they didn't sort of mock it, right? Because they could have easily done that. I think it was easily mockable. 
Um, and, and they were very supportive. That was really huge. That's incredible. I haven't heard those statistics before. So you're kind of up against it before you've even got started there in Mexico, right? But yeah. I love that you had the whole napkin. I'm writing down my equations. I'm, I'm good to go on this. <laughs> I just want to start this episode with a message of gratitude. Thank you. Thank you to everyone that tunes in to listen to this podcast. By doing so, you've enabled me to live out my dream of making a world that works for everyone. And it's one of the greatest privileges in my life to have real, heartfelt and vulnerable conversations that we can all learn from. I owe you a huge thanks for being here. And can I ask a favour? I cannot tell you how much it can change the reach and therefore the impact of this podcast by doing just one simple thing. And that thing is hitting the subscribe button. So thank you. And let's continue to open up together. So tell us what happened next then. How did you uh, unfold on that pathway of physics then? So um, so I remember my first class of pre-algebra um, was in my first year of middle school. And my school was really, really small. We had about 150 students from kindergarten to high school. And in Mexico, we have three years of kindergarten. So the school was tiny. My class was like six students. So that was, at that point, you know, it was not fun because you don't have a large group of friends. But obviously, educationally, that was really, really nice, which I didn't value at that point because I was a kid and I just wanted to have friends. And my first two years of middle school, I had excellent math teachers. So they really fostered, I already loved math and, and I loved it, I did well in it. And they fostered, to continue to foster that love. Um, and then in Mexico also, because very few people go to college, um, the, the, the educational system is made so when you graduate high school, you have an associates because very few people even graduate high school. Um, so that means that your last two years in high school, you're taking specific classes for an associates. And if you want to go to college, you need to know what you're going to major in. So there's no possibility of undecided. I remember when I moved to the US, I didn't know what that was. And I thought it was really weird. Um, you can't be undecided because you need to sort of take the prerequisites in high school. So I had to know that I was going into science. Otherwise, I wouldn't have taken pre-calculus and like the appropriate classes. And I would have started really off when I went to college. Um, so I knew I was going into physics or math. And I was taking the pre-calculus classes in high school that was appropriate for that. Um, there was only six universities in the whole country that offered an undergraduate degree in physics. I was super lucky. Two of those were in my home state. So that was extraordinarily lucky. Um, and I picked one of them and I started studying physics. That's also some more incredible statistics there. That's <laughs> absolutely crazy that at such an early age, you had to make those kind of uh, decisions that would cut other subjects off and kind of find your pathway. So yeah, really incredible to actually follow that pathway through to completion as well. It's kind of all stacked up against you, but I love that. So. Tell me a bit about your experience at college then. So um, when I started the program, there was 10 physics undergraduates in my class. They called us the miracle generation because it in was so huge. From everybody? In, in just my class. Oh, wow. Um, but the, gen the class before mine had two, 
two physics students and a class after mine had one. So oh, wow. normally they would get one to three and there was 10 of us. So it was incredible. You know, it was like really odd. Actually, it's never happened since. It hadn't happened, you know, since. And it's never happened, you know, since we graduated. So that was incredible. We were at this massive class and there was three girls out of the 10. So that was also massive. Um, I had I had a good time. Um, I sort of had to get comfortable. That, that was my first time living away from my parents. So there was sort of all of that. And I had to live in a different city because the university was in the capital of the state. So I was um, in a different city, living in the dorms. Um, so there was sort of that adjustment. But we had a great class. It was a great cohort. I spent so much time with my physics uh, class. And, um, and I realized that that was what I wanted to do. You know, like it was very reaffirming once I got there, like, this is what I wanted to do. I didn't know exactly what I was going to do. I didn't quite understand that there was like a PhD and all these things that I know now. Um, I didn't know, you know, how that would end up, but I knew I liked school. I knew I liked physics and I knew I would continue studying and that would lead somewhere. And again, the really important part was that my parents were very supportive because like anytime I spoke with anybody else, they would always say like, are you going to study physics? You're going to starve. That was always the reaction in Mexico. They'd always say, you're going to starve to death. What are you going to do? Become a, a physics professor, physics teacher in high school? Like, why would you do that? And there was all this negative stigma. Um, but because my parents believed it, thankfully, I didn't care. But I think, if, you know, I've had conversations with other students where that's not the case for different reasons. And that plays a huge role, right? So I was extremely lucky that my parents somehow, even though they didn't, um, they didn't graduate, you know, and they had nothing to do with STEM. My my mom had taken like a semester in accounting and then decided to do something else. And my dad um, eventually was doing uh, real estate. So they had nothing to do with STEM, but somehow they believed it. Um, and none of my sisters do STEM either. So it's just, it was just uh, a wonderful thing that's really paid off. That's, that's crazy, right? Because often <laughs> we're told as scientists, you know, take, take the route that's going to lead to some kind of like useful job. Uh, don't do arts because you're going to starve if you do the arts, but you're almost told the opposite there. Like don't do physics, <laughs> you won't be able to eat and you'll end up just being a teacher, like a terrible thing to say. And I know I've had women on the show before that have talked about their engineering and their physics experience and how they were told in high school you know the best uh, kind of thing that you can expect is to reach you know being a teacher in physics as opposed to all the other options that are available to you with physics and subsequently engineering so what was your experience of expanding your horizons when it came to different kind of pathways as your career unfolded? Um, so I was, so now, you know, it's incredible where I am now and now looking back and there's all these things that, you know, I wish had happened differently. Um, so I was very disappointed now looking back, there's no culture in Mexico about doing like internships and things like that, because here in the U S at least, and I know, you know, talking to other optic ambassadors and other colleagues in other places, um, you know, that's building up your resume, of course. It's a really important part of getting ready to apply for high school, for grad school and for jobs. Um, 
we didn't, again, very few people go to college in Mexico. So the culture behind it, um, there's just not much culture there. We don't have, now that's changed, thankfully, 20 years later. Um, but um, I didn't have any, you know, uh, undergraduate chapters of professional societies, which are also extremely, extremely important in terms of networking and professional development and, and growth and all these things. Um, so, but we were all a tight-knit community. So one of the really important things and what really opened the door for me is I was always involved in these extracurriculars. I always wanted, since, since I was in, in Tecamachalco where I grew up in Puebla, um, I was always doing sort of these extra things. So that carried on when I was in college. And I, we sort of had, it wasn't a chapter, but it was a group of students that came together and we organized a conference. And we organized the um, a physics conference in 2008. And we invited a Nobel Prize in Physics, Dr. Douglas Oshirov, uh, from 1996, and he came to our university, which was incredible. We got a bank to sponsor the conference, and we had 300 people from physics programs all over the country. It was incredible. It was a huge, successful endeavor. One of the other speakers that we invited was Dr. Jonathan Gardner, an astrophysicist at NASA, and I ended up talking to him, and he asked me if I would be interested in doing an internship at NASA. And that's how it started. Oh, wow. That's an incredible story. So bringing everybody, if I can't go and network where I am, I'm going to bring the networking opportunities to me. And tell me a little bit about what happened next with the NASA internship then. Um, and it was funny the way that that happened. So every like uh, every student from our group sort of had assigned, you know, your own speaker. I had assigned a different speaker and the person that was assigned to the NASA astrophysicist got sick the night before and he called me desperately. And so the airport is like a three hour drive from the university. So he's like, I'm not going to be able to go with my speaker. You have to fill in. And at five in the morning, I had to show up and be with the speaker with the astrophysicist for three hours in this car. So of course I was terrified because I'm like, what am I going to talk to with this amazing you know, individual? And of course he was super nice and he made it really easy. Um, so we're in the car for three hours by chance because it worked out that way. And he wrote down on a piece of paper, the link to apply for a NASA internship. So he's super nice about it. He left one week later, I applied. And that summer I got accepted into the, one of the NASA internships. Now the, the way that things are structured at NASA have changed a lot, um, but they accepted me and they needed help in the optics branch. I didn't know that people could become optical engineers. I didn't know that I wanted to do optics. It sort of happened. I was like in physics, optics. Yeah, it's sort of, it's all, you know, I, we, I, we can figure this out. And they placed me in the optics branch and I was like, People can do this and get paid. This is what I want to be doing. So it's, it was wonderful. It kind of takes you back to the lasers at the disco, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, a little bit. But you had quite a, what I would call a serendipitous moment of that person's sick. You have to step in. Suddenly you get handed this piece of paper, like apply for an internship. But how do you know that it was the right step for you to take rather than just an opportunity how did you decipher that it was like a yes for you to go that pathway? Um, I don't think, I mean, I guess that's the advantage of being young and then maybe you don't think things too much. I think one of the things that I struggle with is that now I'm 
much more analytics. It takes me a long time to make a decision sometimes instead of sort of like some of my sisters have a personality like just do it and it'll sort out. And that's not my personality. But back then, I think I was a little bit more, I don't know, risk averse. And I was like, um, again, the really key part, my parents also were very supportive because I was it was I had only lived in Mexico, you know, like that was my experience just being home and you know, I, my parents lived about an hour and a half away. I had only lived in Mexico, you know, like all these things that have that, that, you know, I was comfortable. So then here I was, you know, I grew up in a pig farm in, in Mexico. I was told I was going to be, you know, I was lucky if I was a high school uh, physics teacher, which of course now, now I know that we are in desperate need of really good high school physics teachers. So obviously, you know, that, like you said, it's, it's not, it's not an insult, you know, we really need these, these qualified individuals. Um, but it was always sort of treated as something, as something bad. So then here's the possibility of NASA. And I don't know if you, if you, you watched it. I remember when I thought of NASA, I thought of the movie Armageddon with Bruce Willis. That's not where my head was. That's what I remember when I used to think of NASA, like that was it. Because also in Mexico, we didn't, um, you know, we had antenna like the for me to watch movies from the U.S. It, it take a long time and they were always dubbed. And, you know, so things took a long time for me to, to even experience them in Mexico. So um, that's what I thought about NASA when I thought of the idea of NASA. So when he said that, my immediate reaction was like, he's super sweet, but I'm never going to get in. Nobody knows my university. This little university is about 7000 students in Southern Mexico, Universidad de las Americas, like this Mexican girl that grew up in a farm and this tiny little school. Like, I was like, it's incredible that he's even offering this to me, but, and I had a decent transcript, but I now know, you know, from being on the other side, you know, we get thousands of students that apply that have excellent transcripts, you know? So, so I was like, my transcript, I, I don't think it was excellent. It was good. Right. I also had a scholarship in my university, so I needed to have good grades to maintain my scholarship. But, um, you know, but I, I didn't think that 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 would be possible. But again, my parents, you know, my mom is like, you got to apply, just apply. And also it was free. Right. So sometimes even to apply to grad school, it's not always free, but it's free to apply. So it was like, I'm going to do it anyway. I got the best letters of recommendation that I could get. And then to my surprise, I was accepted. And then it was like, now what, right? Because now I have to figure out to come to Maryland and how am I going to live here and where am I going to live? And like, you know, I didn't feel quite comfortable speaking English, you know? Um, so I was like, and I still, I still have all these stories of when I got to Maryland and everybody was super nice. And the area where, where Goddard is in Maryland, sort of a, it's not a very urban area. So like you really need a car to be able to get around. Um, so I ended up living really close so that I could walk. And I wasn't so dependent on public transit, even though I, I was a little bit. Um, but it was just sort of the shock of it all, but still the, um, the support that my parents had so that when I was scared, they were like, just do it. It's going to be okay. And that's the key about support systems, right? Whether it's your parents or somebody else, it's that they have belief in you until that time that you can fully believe in yourself. 
and hopefully that happens at some point right but it's always good to have these external people that are just your champions and believe in you and you can always kind of tap into them for well they believe I can do it so maybe it's possible for me so I've definitely experienced that myself as well so tell us about life at NASA then I mean um it's I kind of want to ask you if this is a really awful thing. I kind of want to ask you if they have like the freeze dried ice cream that they have. So we have Jodrell Bank down the road from us, um, which is one of the big telescopes here in the UK. They have freeze dried ice cream in the shop, like on the way out. I kind of want to ask that question, but I know I should really be asking you more important questions. <laughs> but do they? <laughs> they do. I mean, they have it at every NASA gift store. <laughs> It's very popular. I probably would get it quite a bit for myself as a snack um, early on. But like everything, once you do it too much, then you sort of get too much of it and you need a break. Um, but yes, we have that at every NASA store. We have that at our visitor center. It is definitely a popular item. So <laughs> people keep coming back for it. Um, but that was it also, right? So I still had sort of like Armageddon view of when I thought of NASA. And I was like, I'm going to come into this place. Everything is going to be high tech. Everybody's going to be brilliant. I'm going to be, you know, the stupid in the room that doesn't know anything. And everything is going to be, you know, over the top. So I was, I was terrified getting there. And then what I learned, like you learn in life, is like, these are all people. These are all people that are very passionate about what they do. I mean, NASA has won for the 10th consecutive year is the best place to work in the federal government. That's out of a survey that people fill out, um, that people volunteer to fill out. So it's just a, a testament of, you know, people like working at NASA because it's a great place to work and it's all made of people that are doing the best that they can. So, um, so that was very clear when I got there. Like I said, I didn't have a car. So I remember like my first weekend there, some of my colleagues were like, Margaret, do you need a, a ride to, to the grocery store, you know, just to get things? And I was super shy. Um, and um, so I, I, I was, I would always say no, because I always wanted to like figure out things on my own. And I thought this is going to be a chance of a lifetime. So if I'm, if I came here, I came to work really hard. So I would get in at eight and I would be there for like 12 hours. Now I don't actually know what I was doing. I, I'm like thinking back and like, what was I doing for 12 hours? It's probably super inefficient. So everything took a long time, but I remember thinking like, this is huge. So I'm just going to be here all the time. As long as many, until they kick me out, I just want to be here taking it all in. Um, and everybody was super nice about it. And you know, and nothing, I remember thinking like, I'm going to walk into the lab. There's going to be like a camera. It's going to scan my retina or something, you know, or like really like uh, very sci-fi and very sophisticated. And now, you know, we just use keys to open the labs, you know, it's very normal. Um, and again, it's just, just passionate people working together to solve problems. Ultimately, that's what makes NASA amazing. And some of the world's most meaningful problems as well, because it's not just about space exploration. There's an awful lot of research that goes into being able to get people in space in the first place that actually have resulted in things that we take for granted now in everyday life. Um, so tell me, what do you think your best moment was during that first period in NASA? I don't know. I... 
I knew so little about optics. I had taken one class on optics, so I didn't know anything. And now I remember some of the questions that I asked and I was like, gosh, I don't know how they, we you know they were willing to, to like, you know, accept me and everybody was just amazing. And I still work with these people uh, today, now, whatever, 15 years later. And, you know, and, and they've, we've seen each other grow, right? So that's been incredible, but I didn't know. So there's, so measuring tape. You know, like, you know, the stuff that you have as a contractor, you pull it out of your, I don't know, your waist and you're going to measure a distance. In Mexico, that's called flexometro. So I thought it was called flexometer in English. So I remember I walked into the lab and I'm like, we need a flexometer. And everybody is like, what is a flexometer? And I like didn't even occur because I'm like, obviously, it's just translated. So that word obviously doesn't exist in English. They were like a measuring tape. So I did a lot of that, that it was just like, I was saying the wrong thing. I didn't know how to, but everybody was super nice about it. And, um, and they, they really, and, and I see that now as we continue to have new interns that come in that don't know optics, you know, that philosophy stands, right? Like it's just, these are new, new students that are coming in that are not familiar with some of the stuff. And they're going to say something that doesn't make sense. And, you know, it's, it's our job to help, you know, understand this better. And hopefully what I tried to do is have them just like I did fall in love with optics so that we can continue to have more optical engineers. Amazing. I love how it's come full circle for you. And now you're the person helping the interns come through. And I know that we met, I can't believe it's actually only last year because it feels like it's actually been so much has happened in 18 months but we met over in Washington DC as part of the Optics Society Future Level Up Leadership for Future Leaders um, and you were part of that program and I really loved how you engaged with the program but tell me a bit more how you've been engaging with the Optics Society OSA. It's been such an incredible thing. I mean, so when I met you, Hannah, I met a lot of the the ambassadors. So that was, um, and of course, because of the pandemic, you know, everything sort of got shifted a little bit. So I was selected as an ambassador for 2021, but we didn't come together until 2022. That was with uh, with the new, um, we were getting ready to have the new class of ambassadors of 2022. Um, it's been great because it's an international organization, right? So it's allowed us to sort of, um, and I mean, of course, as now professionals and, and PhDs working in all these different places, in order for us to be able to do that, we have to sort of be international, right? And we're, we have these international collaborations and NASA certainly does a great deal of that. Um, but Optica allows me to go beyond just the aerospace community, right? It allows me to sort of talk to these other people that are similar to me in age-wise that you know, we've all sort of had like this unconventional way of, of coming into optics and that we've learned through struggles and support to get here, um, but from different parts of the world, it has been extraordinary. I've loved meeting other ambassadors and the point of it um, you know, is to continue to build the community and then to reach out, right? And to continue to spread out. So I was able um, with, with my, when I was selected as an ambassador, um, then I can do something for that year. And I was able to go back to my home, to my home state, to my home school, actually, my really small school in Tecamachalco. And I was able to donate some microscopes to the school because they hadn't, they hadn't had microscopes. I remember never having them. This is a tiny, small school. So that was incredible. And I was able to donate some cameras. Um, 
so, so that they could see, you know, what was being imaged in the microscope. Um, and that was just really extraordinary. I was able to visit various universities in Mexico to talk about optics and talk about NASA and talk about Optica. Um, and it was just such an incredible opportunity. And every year con there continues to be more opportunities to do that. And I think it's important that we continue to spread the word and to also recruit because I it's terrifying to me now, you know, all the projections show for the future decades of the world, we don't have enough STEM professionals. And I think it's up to us, the current STEM professionals to help do something about it, right? Because we're all trying to do the best we can, but then eventually, you know, we won't be around and what's going to happen with all these things that we care about. We need other people to do it, but sometimes, you know, like we've all figured out, we need some help and sometimes you need external help. And I think it's up to us to be able to do that. And Optica is a wonderful platform to be able to do that. Absolutely. And there's definitely something special about the op optical, um, Optica ambassadors. I met everyone and I was like, why, how, why are they all so personable? Why are they all so confident? <laughs> I thought I was coming here to help you with that. And they already had such a high standard already. It was really... Um, an incredible experience to have all of you in the room together. Um, and what do you see then as the major challenges? We need more people in STEM in general in the workforce. What do you see as the major challenges and barriers then? There are so many parts of it, right? Like we always hear about the, the pipeline. I remember reading about, you know, the holes in the pipeline and they specifically talk about that for women and some women don't like that word and I don't know, we can talk about, you know, whether that word is right or not, but the reality is that there's a lot of holes in the pipeline and, and specifically for women, you know, we just lose women every step of the way. And we just see that it gets worse and worse. And as you continue to progress in your professional career, there's just less, there's multiple reasons for that. Like you can say there's multiple explanations, um, but that just means that there are multiple solutions that can try to address these problems. Right. And, and, um, some of them are complicated and some of them are not so complicated. So we should be trying to do something about those that are easier to do. And I think Optica is trying to do that, you know, simple things like having with the, with, um, trying to do like um, daycare, you know, for some of the conferences so that, so that both parents uh, can attend the conference and they don't have to worry about providing a daycare. And, and even on the other side, like I think Optica was also providing some grants to do like, um, you know, care of any adult, right? So maybe you have childcare, but maybe you have adult care. Um, and just doing things like that, that allows you to continue to do that professional development, um, which is necessary so that you can continue to progress in your career, um, but sort of having that support so that you can have that. And I work with a lot of organizations that are specifically targeting Latina girls. And, and early on, since like middle school, elementary school, because unfortunately, if I try to go to talk to girls in college, I've already lost all the other ones that didn't make it to that point. And I, I like to work with different, these different uh, schools, museums, nonprofit organizations, where if I can get involved with the parents early on, then I can tell them, you know, like, I am an example that this that there's a huge future because what I've learned over and over is that parents don't quite see that there's a future there. So they're scared. And, and I think ultimately at the end of the day, parents are, are well-intended, right? They want something good for their children. 
and they just don't know that there's opportunities there. So whenever I tell, I've had, you know, I've gone to these various events and I'll have a mom that comes up to me and is crying. And she's like, I didn't know, you know, that my daughter could do this. Um, and they're, you know, they, they learn something. So now that, that mom will be able to play the role that my mom played with me. It says, okay, I believe in you so that when that girl is struggling, she has that support network to be able to carry on. So um, I think we have to continue to pay it forward, but we can only do that, you know, like, like Optica, you know, spread out and trying to, to reach out as much as possible. I totally agree. And I think it's a twofold, like a two-part problem, right? So you've got the lead up to the pipeline itself, and you've been doing some amazing work there in being a role model so that those people can actually see, ah, this is a possibility for me. And it's, you know, there's a wide range of possibility out there if I follow a STEM pathway. So that's kind of the first part, the amount of people coming into the pipeline. And then there's the pipeline itself. And I do use that term myself as well. And we notice at each different stage, as you work through the STEM pipeline, the women, they get less and less and less and less and less. <laughs> so it's about how do we start to plug the holes in that pipeline to retain and elevate the women and the people of color that we already have so that we have a really diverse workforce because my mission really is all around having a world that works for everybody. And when a representative of everybody gets a seat at the table, you're going to have solutions that are fit for all members of society, really. So that's that's me on my little platform. Um, but it sounds like you didn't have the role models ahead. You're kind of like forging ahead, not really seeing anyone like you, but you did have that role model in your mom and dad in their belief system about what was possible for you. So yeah. I feel like they might have been your role models. Yes, and I think um, I didn't see it like that, right? Because at that point, you're sort of going through the moment. And I just remember, even when I applied to grad school, um, when I finished undergrad, and at that point, I had done the internship at NASA, and my boss at NASA had graduated from University of Arizona. So he told me, that's where you have to go to get your PhD. So I applied, um, and I had applied to start in the fall, and they admitted me for, for uh, spring admission. So I was sort of in shock, and they offered me a great fellowship. So I remember... Um, I defended, in Mexico, you need to do a defense for your undergraduate degree. So I defended my undergraduate degree in early December. I had finished my application for grad school in November. And in mid-December, they accepted me for the spring and they offered me a great fellowship. And I wasn't ready mentally, right? Like I was like, I defended in December. I'm going to have six months to figure out, you know, where I'm going to live and all that stuff. And then I'll start in the fall. And then they admitted me. I was in shock. And I remember specifically getting the email and being like, oh my God, what am I going to do? And my mom just like super calm. And I'm the, her, I'm her first child. So like I was the first one to do, you know, whatever and leave. And she was super calm. And she's like, Mika, you have to go. You just open arms and you just embrace it. And it's just like, I, I, I like get emotional just thinking about it. Cause you know, I know now, cause she's like, I never wanted you girls to leave. And me and my sister's but she was so, so, you know, I think if she had been like, I don't know, you know, like that would have been huge. Cause I, but she was so confident and so calm that I was like, okay, mom, yeah, you're right. I can do this. And, and you're right. I didn't sort of have these other, these, this other 
like mentorship on the other side yet. Um, but, but she was just, and, and my dad as well, that they just, they were, they provided such a good platform that I, I was very lucky. So in terms of what you're working on now and the future, what's exciting you at the moment? So I'm very excited to be working on the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope. So I'm sure you've heard of the James Webb Space Telescope. We successfully launched that on December 25th, 2021. That has been doing incredible. It's been taking these wonderful images and collecting wonderful science. Um, and everybody has been able to see that they did a, grunt, a wonderful job sort of like advertising it. So that's been really great. Um, so the successor for the James Webb Space Telescope is the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope. For the first time in the history of NASA, we have selected a winner of the surveys that study astrophysicists, astrophysics and we've named it after a female astronomer, Nancy Grace Froman. So I'm very happy um, to be part of the NASA, to continue to be part of the NASA mission, but now for the first time ever working on a mission that's named after Nancy Grace Froman, that she wasn't only you know, a female astronomer working at NASA, but she was the first um, chief astronomer at NASA. She was instrumental, um, technically wise in the time of Hubble, so it's just it's just incredible to be able to be working on this project. We're getting ready to launch it in three year, three to four years. Our window, our launch window is a little wide, so that's why we haven't uh, decided. But it'll be late twenty six or early twenty seven that we're going to launch this. It's sort of like this weird, like sort of hybrid between the Hubble Space Telescope and the uh, James Webb Space Telescope. They have different parts sort of of each one, but ultimately it's an infrared observatory and we intended to be working side by side with the James Webb Space Telescope. So it's gonna be in the same L2 orbit as Webb is located. Um, it's gonna be infrared and we call them sister missions or cousin missions because we intend for them to be working together because we're launching Roman so soon after Webb was launched. So we're gonna have that advantage. Unlike when you know we did also, Hubble is an ultraviolet telescope versus infrared versus uh, Webb and Roman are both infrared telescopes. But I, I've been working on this for nine years now. One of the components on the uh, Roman Space Telescope is the GRISM, and um, that is actually the result of my PhD dissertation. So it's especially uh, special and important uh, for me personally. Um, because I've worked on that for eight years, and I'm very happy to say that it's been working really, really well. So, um, so it's been a wonderful, wonderful um, path to get here. That's incredible. And I'm noticing that some of these goals are quite long-term goals, right? You've been working on something for like nearly a decade, and in yes. another three or four years' time, you might witness it with your very own eyes out there in space. I mean, incredible. When I was working in science though, and I kind of tangibly knew that like out there, the research was getting to where it needed to be, but I couldn't actually see or feel it. I felt a little bit detached from the impact I was creating. So for me personally, I needed to be up close and personal to it nearly every single day. So how do you keep yourself motivated towards such a long-term goal and a vision when in the day-to-day, -day, you're not seeing the kind of the feedback for that in the same kind of way? Well, um, I think the people 
I, working at NASA, again, I learned that it's not this high-tech scanning your retina type of thing, but it's the people that are just incredible. Um, you know, people are really passionate about what they do. And, you know, I have my colleagues that have been at NASA for 30 years, so they know that these missions take a long time. So I think, you know, when, when I, what, when I didn't understand, especially early on, you know, how long it takes and what the process is, because obviously in order for, I worked on this thing for my PhD for eight years. Um, I didn't know when I started that it was going to take that long, right? I thought it would be something that would happen a little faster. So every, you know, every year I'd be like, okay, I'd see the progress, but it'd be really slow. Um, but my colleagues that had more experience would sort of, you know, explain like, this is okay, we are making progress. And would also sort of give me the context. Cause of course, you know, being new to this, all I saw were, you know, my bubble of problems, whatever wasn't working in that moment. And my colleagues that had the experience and had seen these other things, it's like, go, oh, well, keep it in context here. And would give me sort of like that comforting feeling to say, okay, maybe I have a big problem in my bubble over here, but in the bigger bubble of the project, it's really not that important. And that, that has been really helpful, sort of creating my own network at NASA. And now I have sort of the support structure now that I have at work with my friends and my colleagues there um, so that we can now help each other out, you know, whenever that's needed. So the big picture really helped you keep the context of where you're heading and how far you've already come. And talking about timelines, so I want you to imagine the timeline of your whole life as it currently stands. If you could go back to a any moment on the timeline of your life and whisper a piece of advice in your ear, which moment would you go back to and what would you say to yourself? So there's probably a couple of them that I can think of and they were like really high stress moments. I remember my last year in high school I was always, my, my, my mom was a stay-at-home mom and my sisters and I, you know, had her and that was, that was incredible. And I think that was really instrumental for us. Um, so like I said, I have three sisters. So she was always working with us, you know, making sure, and she, she grew up in the U.S. So she didn't know Mexican history or Mexican geography or Spanish or any of that. So she would study with us, which I always found very motivational that she would put herself through it and she would um, you know, inspires to say, let's figure this out together. So she was always very kind. She'd always push us to make sure we we do things and we'd complete all our, our, our homework, but she was always very kind. And um, in my last semester of high school, I was really stressed about going to college and what I was going to do. And I remember just miserably studying um, and I had always gotten really good grades so I was very concerned that I wasn't going to get a grade. And I remember just crying in my room in Tecamachalco. And my mom would always be like, it's going to be okay. And just sort of stressing about it, like thinking, I have to get 100. Because like getting a 99 is not acceptable. And I was, it was really ridiculous. Now I'm like, gosh, like really, Margaret? But, you know, at that point, that was the really most important thing to me. And that was my priority. Um so I had made like these rules, like I wasn't allowed to have a boyfriend. That was my made up rule that, that because I'm like, school is too important. So I was a little bit too uh, obsessed probably. And I just remember just crying and being really stressed. And it just really stuck with me that I was like, now that I look back, I'm like, I probably wasn't healthy behavior. And my mom would always be like, 
it's okay. It's not a big deal, right? Because now, you know, she has the the wisdom of life knowing that really it's not a big deal. But I think I would try to, if I could whisper, you know, like, it's okay. It's really going to be okay. Because now I know obviously that that 100% wouldn't have mattered. Um, so that, that was one time. And then the other time, which was sort of similar, but the scale was different, um, was for my comprehensive exam at the PhD level. So I failed my comprehensive exam the first time. And my mom always tells me, you know, it's important that you tell that story because people, you know, we always talk about all the wonderful things and all the great things, but we don't talk about all these failures that are super important, right? That really help, uh, you know, uh, up, help us grow. And I think those, those are really um, a critical part of, of understanding yourself and understanding what you want to do. So really sort of had to figure out, you know, do I want to finish the PhD or, and it was really sort of a critical moment, like, do I not have what it takes to get a PhD? And at that point, I had been really wanting for a long time. Um, so I wish I had told myself, you know, after, after I failed and I got that letter that said that, <clears throat> I wish I would have said like, also, it's gonna be okay. Cause it was really devastating. And I was like, maybe I don't have what it takes. Um, and I needed a little bit of time to sort of uh, decide what I wanted to do. But both times, I think I would come at myself with a little more kindness that I had for myself in that moment. And I think that's a really good message for everybody, right? A little bit more kindness and self-compassion goes an awful long way. And it sounds like to me that you had quite a strong, <coughs> excuse me, had quite a strong perfectionist maybe with the <laughs> standards of the grades that you had. But then when you brought into that concept, okay, I have to get really good at failure to be able to move forward. Everybody fails and it's how you respond to those failures that really makes a difference. And I call it the art of failing gracefully. And I think it's really <laughs> important for those in leadership positions to share their failures because often we look at a person's CV and we would see yours and it would have like NASA all over the top of it and it would all look amazing. But then to hear some of the challenges and the struggles that happen along the way is critical for people saying, okay, that's a showreel of highlights. It doesn't represent the vast majority of the efforts and the struggle and the challenges and the questions that we ask along the way uh, of other people. And it's really important for people to understand that the faster that we fail at times, the faster that we succeed as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's just hard, right? Like, it's just really yeah. uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. For everybody, the struggles that we have, it all kind of comes back to fear, right? Whether it's fear of failure, fear of being rejected, fear of being embarrassed. It's all uncomfortable feelings. And the better we can get at managing uncomfortable feelings, the easier tasks and life actually becomes. Amazing. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk to me today. I've really enjoyed hearing your story and I'm wishing you all the success in seeing this mission through to completion and witnessing it with your very own eyes. Well done, Margaret. Thank you so much, Hannah. Again, I really appreciate the opportunity and the patience as we figured out how to finally connect. I really appreciate the, the platform so that we talk about you know these sort of more you know, not fun and beautiful things that are just part of life that we need to, to learn to cope with. So thank you again for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to Women in STEM Career and Confidence.
What was your key takeaway today? To start your intentional careers journey, take the Career Accelerator Scorecard and receive a personalized report to transform your career design strategy. All you need to do is go to scorecard.intentional-careers.com forward slash strategy. And don't worry, the link is available in the show notes.